Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 241 of the Leading Learning Podcast, in which we talk with Matthew Richter, president at the Tiagi Group. Matt is a facilitator, game designer, instructional designer, management consultant, author, speaker, and the co-host of the Truth in Learning podcast, along with Will Talheimer. Salisa, what do you and Matt talk about? Well, we talk about motivation and self-determination theory in the context of learning, and we draw in particular on the work of Edward Deasy and Richard Ryan, with whom, as luck would have it, Matt studied in grad school. We also talk about learning games and how they differ from store games, why lazy trainers are a good thing, the importance of activities in learning and in designing faster, cheaper, better training, and we talk about leadership in learning. Leadership is an area of interest for Matt. He wrote the book, The Leadership Story, A New Model of Leadership, and his view is that most leadership training is pretty worthless, and we talk about what he recommends instead. And so what reflection questions do you have to offer for this episode? And as a reminder, listeners, you can find the reflection questions in the show notes available at leadinglearning.com slash episode 241. Well, I have two to suggest. First, Matt talks about the role of autonomy, competence, and relatedness as factors in motivation. What are you doing or what might you do better to support those three factors in the design and delivery of your learning products and services? And second, Matt offers four ideas for how to realize that trifecta of faster, cheaper, and better when it comes to designing learning products and services. Which of the four might you be able to try? Those are great questions. And we'll also mention that Matt and Will Talheimer are running the L&D conference June 22nd through July 31st, 2020. It's entirely online, of course, and features both asynchronous and synchronous learning events throughout the six weeks for an in-the-workflow experience so attendees can enhance skills, network, and participate in deeper learning than at standard old-fashioned conferences. You can find out more about the L&D conference by going to leadinglearning.com slash L&D. That's L-A-N-D-D. And if you decide you want to attend, we can get you at least a 20% discount if you reach out to us. Just drop us a note at info at leadinglearning.com. With that, let's move on to the conversation with Matt Richter. Hello and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Salisa Steele and today I'm talking with Matthew Richter. 
Matt is president at the Tiagi Group. He's a facilitator, game designer, instructional designer, and management consultant. He's also an author, a speaker, and the co-host of the Truth in Learning podcast, along with Will Tallheimer, who I should note has been a guest on Leading Learning before. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Salisa. It's, it's truly an honor to be here. Uh, I, I actually feel like an imposter given all the other cool guests you've had. Um, so, so I feel very honored to be here and excited to chat with you. Well, very happy to have you here. Thank you for making time to talk. So before we dig in on, on some various topics, just want to give you a chance to say whatever else you would like for listeners to kind of know about you and your work as backdrop for our conversation. I can't think of anything else. You you said it all. I should have you do all of our marketing for us. <laughs> all right. Well, then we'll get to it. And I know that motivation is an interest of yours and that you're a fan of Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan, as I am. And we've, in fact, devoted an earlier episode to the book, Why We Do What We Do. And so when you're thinking about motivation in the context of learning, you know, what advice, what suggestions do you have for learning businesses and the educational products and services that they're designing and delivering? Sure. Sure. Well, first, first of all, I was very, very lucky in the the late nineties to be a grad student, uh, with them. Oh, wow. Great. uh, in fact, um, uh, they're two of my heroes and, uh, they've really truly influenced both from a, my days as a student and their subsequent writings and, and uh, speeches and books and so forth. They've really influenced the way I, I try and live my life. I think about relationships, work, health, uh, parenting, and so forth. So self-determination theory is not just uh, a, a way of thinking about motivation. It, it's really, in, in many ways, it's, it's kind of a blueprint for really, to, to quote Ed, uh, understanding why we do what we do. So first of all, you should always have a purpose. There should always be some connection, some rationale for why people are, are taking a course or, or trying to learn a new skill. Uh, the more people understand the meaning and the value of something, the more they can volitionally engage with the material. Um, uh, in other words, they, they, f- they feel autonomy. They experience autonomy. Uh, they, uh, they, they, they can freely choose to, um, uh, to learn the material and, and see the value of it. The second thing you have to do is think about competence. So uh, if we're trying to build knowledge and skills, we want to make sure that people experience uh, the course in a way where they, they feel like they can do it, first of all, and that they can improve throughout the, the experience. So people have to have uh, a sense of getting better. To do that, uh, you don't want to, to put them through a boring experience. Otherwise, they become complacent and disinterested. Alternatively, you don't want to frustrate them. You don't want them to feel like they're being rushed, don't have the time or the resources to learn, and, and subsequently, they are incapable of actually learning it from a knowledge and ability standpoint. And then lastly, if you're doing some kind of a, a program, uh, there could be an affiliative component to it, a relatedness component, where they, they can engage with the people around them and develop relationships through a cohort, or they feel a sense of belonging to the organization 
uh, who, who's providing them with the, the training. Um, but there has to be some sense of involvement. You have to to uh, pull people in and, and get them uh, to feel like they're a part of a bigger a bigger thing. And I feel like this is where, in training and development, we spend a lot of time talking about engaging learners. Mm. This is only one aspect of it, right? The other aspects around supporting autonomy and supporting competence are just as important. And so I, I really, I, I squirm when I hear people talk about employee engagement or I squirm when people only talk about engaging learners. They're, that's just one aspect, one slice of the pie. So uh, hopefully I answered that question. Yes, absolutely. And so, I mean, you're talking about autonomy and competence and relatedness and trying to make sure that those are all supported in any learning experience, learning product that we're designing and developing. And I think your point about, you know, maybe too much focus being given to this idea of, oh, engagement, we need to engage learners um, when there's really so much more we need to be doing, or, or perhaps even, do you think that autonomy and competence and relatedness are ways to engage learners? Well, yeah. And, and I think it's really important when you're doing a design to really think about how am I increasing the overall competency of the individual? So what activities am I providing that give them a chance to, to see something, act on it, practice it, get feedback, try it again? What resources are we putting into the environment for them to leverage as they, they go through that experience? Um, how are we giving them a chance to fail but in a safe way so that they can see what good looks like and, and what bad looks like. Um, from an autonomy standpoint, uh, again, it's that connection back to, to purpose and meaning and relevance. Um, but it's also, uh, you know, there are facts of life. We have to engage in compliance training sometimes. We have to do things we don't want to do necessarily intrinsically. So is there a way for us to really connect for them uh, a purpose for doing it? Right, you can't just rely on people having a good time. Sometimes we have to experience things we don't want to do, and there's still ways to be autonomy supportive in that. What well, some of what you're talking about around giving learners chances to to try things, chances to fail in a self in a safe uh, way, um, and this idea of just engaging learners brings to mind games, and I know that mm-hmm. games are an area of, of focus for you. And I'm thinking specifically about games designed to support learning. And, yeah. and so what do you see as the legitimate purpose, or maybe there's more than one, maybe there are purposes of, of games that are supporting learning? What works well? And maybe what are some pitfalls or mistakes to avoid? Um, so first of all, a game should be a training game, right, is very different from a game you might buy at a game store. Right, uh, a training game is a game that that follows all the rules of a structured uh, uh, game. Right, I mean uh, you're going to have a competition, whether it's with yourself or with others, or with some kind of challenge. You're going to have an end to the game, and so forth. There are rules for games, but if it's a training game, it has to have a learning component to it. There has to be some some result that uh, aligns with the learning outcome. And so a good training game has a a learning outcome. Good training games with learning outcomes are generally going to be better if they're easy to learn. So I've seen simulations that are beautiful and elegant, 
but as effective training simulations, they fail because they're really complex to learn. If mm. your participants need a day to learn how to play a four-hour game, it's too much. Mm. So simplicity, I think, is very important. Games, training games that re- rely on a lot of props uh, can fail. Uh, I love some of the Lego stuff that's out there, you know, the serious play stuff and, and other simulations that use Lego. But what happens if your Lego don't show up? Mm-hmm. Right? What happens if you, if, if, if you are so reliant on these props and, and then that doesn't work? So, so from, from an organizational standpoint, you know, as you deal with your logistics, you have to manage the game more simply, I think, and be ready for anything. And then lastly, I think games shouldn't be so rule-oriented. You need rules. You have to have the structure for the game. But the game is really an excuse to reach that learning outcome. So if we spend so much focus on, hey, you're not playing right, let me correct you, or you change that rule, who cares? So games should, should from a facilitative standpoint, be flexible. I like that last point in particular around not being too focused on the rules. Um, I feel like I see that sometimes uh, in the K through 12 uh, space with, oh, with absolutely. my kids. Yeah. Absolutely. I was, seeing, I was uh, in my daughter's class years ago. She, she's too old now to let me in. But um, they were playing a game teaching them how to, how to um, uh, learning basically how to manage money. And the teacher started scolding the kids because they were having too much fun <laughs> and they were changing the rules for the game. They were, they were literally learning more by manipulating the game mechanics mm. and the teacher stopped it right? because they weren't playing correct, you know, and that's horrible. Right. It's so, not about the game. Well, right. And so back to your first point then around, you know, if it's a, a game for learning, a game for training, then it, you need to be focused on that learning outcome mm-hmm. and it needs to clearly support that. Absolutely. We, we talk constantly. Tiagi always is talking about, we need to be able to modify games on the fly. You have to be able to modify your game. Well, so I'm, I'm going to move us to yet another subject. We're just kind of touching lightly sure. on all these things, but you have so many uh, areas of interest and expertise that I kind of want to touch on all of them. And I know leadership is, is another area that you've given a lot of thought to and done some work in, even written a book about. Um, and so I was particularly interested in your observation that this idea that leadership is, is really a story versus like a set of competencies. So maybe you could just explain a bit what you mean when you say leadership is a story that we tell. Yeah, so, so first of all, this, this actually came to me when I was reading Homo Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Mm-hmm. And in his opening, I don't remember if it's in his, his prologue or first chapter, but he talks about the notion that, that uh, the only species on the planet that has the ability to both adapt and collaborate in large numbers is human beings. That we, we are, you know, you, uh, apes or chimps, they're, they're great at adapting, but they can only do it in small numbers. You never see huge cities of chimps, right? And ants, on the other hand, they're really great at, at, at this is collaboration thing, but they, they really stink at adapting. I mean, you, you, you put some poison in front of them, they die, right? And they're, they're, great at large numbers in, in that adaptation, but they, they, I'm sorry, in the collaboration, but they don't adapt well. Mm. And so 
Harari says the reason for this is because human beings created the narratives. They created myths and stories. And if you think about money, for example, we have money is really just a social construction. Money is this thing that exists for that we've made up. We accept that our green $20 bills are, have a $20 value. We just agree on it. That's a, that's a shared narrative. Well, for that to happen, the extrapolation then is you need some people to be able to convey and tell these stories. You need some people to be able to, to get a whole large number of people coordinating, right, collaborating, and adapting through those stories, and those are leaders. Mm. So to me, leadership is really about that coordination, that adaptation, that narrative creation, getting people to mobilize from point A to point B, as James McGregor Burns says, right? You do that through storytelling. You do that by getting people excited. You do that by getting them to say, wow, where you're describing is a better place than where I am. That's leadership. Mm. That's a story. And so that's what gets, gets me excited, so do you have thoughts on the implications for this leadership as story in the context of a, of a learning business? So, you know, how leaders either run their learning business or what they might need or want to do differently to better serve their learners, kind of employing that leadership as story viewpoint. Well, I do. I do, but it's going to put me out of business. <laughs> because cause I, I, I pretty much, I strongly believe leadership development is kind of a waste of time and money. Mm-hmm. And that if you, Jeffrey Pfeffer from Stanford in his wonderful book, Leadership BS, talks about all the research that's been done showing that leadership development's kind of failed. Mm. That we, you know, we're not talking about a large number of successes. And, and <clears throat> one of the reasons leadership development fails is because often it's, it's taken out of context. Mm. So one function of good leadership is context. You have to understand that that if we're in the middle of world war ii franklin roosevelt is going to lead us right but bob harris from somewhere may not have had the right timing the right skills the right individual characteristics to lead in that moment and then we move into the 1950s or the 2020s and the context is completely different and the needs of the moment are different Mm -hmm. so context is really important The second thing is perspective. It kind of requires leadership moments to have passed for us to identify them as having been leadership, right? Very rarely do we identify someone as a great leader in the moment. It's only after the leader has done something that we see that she's done it, Mm. right? Or that we want to follow her for the next time. Have you ever met someone and said, that person's great. I'm going to follow that person without ever knowing what that person has done before. <laughs> no, right. we don't do that. <laughs> and then lastly, you, you have this component of time. Our views of leadership change over time. For example, Andrew Jackson was beloved by Americans probably right up in the last 20 years. And it's only when we've changed our views on race, thankfully, changed our views on Native American relationships and, and so forth. And we've started to really reevaluate our, our perspective of him. And so the distance of time, the, the perspectives we have, and the context really influence how we understand leadership. 
Now, what's that mean as, as developers of leaders? Well, it means it's a moving target. It means it's nebulous. It means that what works today won't work tomorrow. So what are we training? And the evidence for this, anecdotally at least, and there's lots of academic evidence as well, but the evidence for this is take coaches uh, for American football. How many American coaches have won the Super Bowl more than once with multiple teams? Mm. If I recall, I think it's none. Mm. I don't think any of they move to another team. Their skills haven't changed. Even their perspectives have probably gotten better, but the contexts are so different that they're unable to do it. Their mm. players are different. Their bosses are different. The city is different. The fans, the grounds, all that stuff, right? And so, it, you know, context is so important that we forget how much it, it really plays into it. And we forget that individuals don't have as much control over whether they're leaders as we'd like. And so train, train people how to read a budget, train people how to develop a strategy, train people how to communicate a strategy, train people on the specific skills that we see executives need. Forget calling it leadership. Mm. Let's look at it as executive acumen and, and focus it that way. And I think we would have a lot more success. So it sounds like focus in on the specific skills, the things that really are much more uh, directly attackable through learning interventions so. and, and focus yeah. on those rather than this kind of nebulous idea of leadership. Yeah. If, if, if I have to sit through one more training course taught by someone who's ever never actually been in a leadership role, but read maybe one or two books teaching me leadership, and asking me, who's your favorite leader? I think I might want to, you know, <laughs> run my head through a wall. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you for that uh, very, I think, honest answer to um, leadership uh, as story and the kind of implications of, of your I can views. Hear, I can hear the clients hanging up on me now. <laughs> so. Well, so I think here's an idea that is very attractive to, to everyone, which is um, I know at the Tiagi group that, that you all embrace this idea that you can actually have faster, cheaper, and better training. You know, it's not the usual sort of pick two of three. And I'm guessing that everybody really does like that, that they would love for that to be true um, and for them to be able to design faster, cheaper, better. And so I'm curious about what principles or suggestions you might offer for how folks can realize that trifecta. Sure. Well, first of all, all of these come from Tiagi's brain. So Tiagi has been doing this um, uh, effectively since 1963 when he came to the U.S. But he, um, he, he's one of the founding thought leaders in performance improvement. Um, and he, he's been really focused on how do we use interactivity as a way of increasing stickiness, get people to retain information, get people to practice, get feedback, and so forth. And so these principles come from him. One of the principles is build the airplane while you fly it. In other words, when we're doing design, you have to constantly try it out. And, and if you're, you call it a pilot, you've removed the, the context from, from what you're looking at. So take a class, take a cohort, and, and run it. And you'll modify it on the fly, right? You'll change things as you go. So build it as you go. 
By the way, I don't recommend this with real airplanes. <laughs> but in a learning and development setting, skip the pilot. Just teach people. Mm-hmm. So build it while you fly. Secondly is let the inmates run the asylum. In other words, if you let the participants do the work, if you, you truly believe the mantra that, that collectively they're probably smarter than you, then you have the ability to leverage activities wrapped around content and let them do all the work. Third principle that is associated with that one is she who does the most talking learns the most. So let's let them do most of the work. I believe in lazy trainers, mostly because Tiagi taught me that, <laughs> right? The lazy trainer is probably the best trainer because the, that trainer is doing the least amount of work and effort. Uh, another pr- principle is wrap activity around content, which I just mentioned earlier, but it, let's call it out. And, and this is the notion that content's everywhere. We don't have to design content in a way we did in the 80s. So let's leverage that content, but wrap activities around it. And Tiagi's identified 66, I believe. I think we're up to 66 different categories of interactive strategies. Mm. So in each of these strategies have hundreds of different games associated with them. So, so using activities means I can use the frame of that activity and insert my content over and over and over again, which means I'm going to be faster. Mm-hmm. We think it means we're going to be more effective too, because activity is shown, especially associated with the right of a content, to increase retention and increase application, increase the ability to understand and make decisions later. And then finally, it's cheaper because you don't have to actually spend all this time doing it. So if you ask me to design a course for you, I'm ready to go in five minutes. Just put me in front of the, the room. We're ready. Well, that's, so. that's very impressive. <laughs> but I, I do think, as you were just kind of touching on at the end there, that so much of what underpins maybe all of those principles, but it's certainly most of them, is that idea of um, uh, of really emphasizing getting getting the learner to do something and to, to actually um, take responsibility for what's happening uh, in that learning experience so that they're beginning to apply and they're making the connections. And that does then, uh, I guess, uh, make it a little bit easier for a trainer or uh, a facilitator. I think so. I'm constantly shocked how many trainers don't want this approach because they feel like they lose control when they run an activity. That um, that they'd rather work on on uh, massaging their slides with mm. the content and getting their talk ready. Uh, it, it's been decades since we found out that lecturing probably is nowhere near as effective, and yet you still find lecturing everywhere. And so, if you run into one of those. <clears throat> trainers who's reluctant to embrace this approach really wants to focus on content instead um do you have any advice for how to uh persuade her to try um a different way we we like to say just try the game mm-hmm. see what happens this is a simple activity try it mm-hmm. you decide if it works really well for you embrace it uh, as a mentor of mine used to say if it doesn't give it to your worst enemy <laughs> Excellent. 
So I'm going to start wrapping up and go ahead and ask what we ask of all our guests on the Leading Learning Podcast. And this is a question that focuses on your personal learning. And the question is, what is one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? So uh, I'm going to go back to Rich Ryan uh, because I I assume grad school counts. Um, Rich ran a seminar uh, on different um, uh, psychological theories. So, so self-determination theory was one of them. Uh, you, you know, you, we looked at what Freud did, Kohut, Rogers, and so forth. And every week of the seminar, he would posit a, a problem for the next week. And then he would assign us one of the perspectives, right? So this week, you're, you're going to argue from the perspective of Rogers, you from Adler, you're from Kohut, you're from DC and Ryan. And your job is to uh, be ready to, to debate it. Mm-hmm. And I, I had so much difficulty with those activities week to week. And it's still with me today, 20, 25 years later. And, it, I, and it's one of my favorite frames to use now, in fact, because it forced me to look from different perspectives, how other thought leaders considered the same problem. Mm. And, um, and it really opened my eyes uh, and not to just be so dogmatic about my own perspectives. Well, I think that's a very applicable, valuable um, idea. Just you don't have to necessarily focus only on what is it that you believe about a particular topic. Maybe before you even come to that conclusion that thinking it through from multiple perspectives might allow you to come at a uh, a more complete and uh, well-reasoned uh, viewpoint on a particular subject. Although, to, to be fair, now that I'm thinking about it, I can't remember if it was Rich or Ed D.C. who ran that. Okay. So give <laughs> but, them both credit. Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> Excellent. Well, and then uh, final question is just if listeners sure. want to learn more about you or your work or connect with you, where would you have them go? So Tiagi and I are always at Tiagi.com. And we're constantly updating our calendar. We're, we have our Tiagi game blog that Tiagi religiously writes monthly. Um, I'm also, I live on LinkedIn. So you're always welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and um, Will Tallheimer and I, as you mentioned, have our podcast, Truth and Learning. You can find us at truthandlearning.com or you can access it through uh, tiagi.com. Uh, and then I'm all over. You can often run into me at conferences and or email me or anything. So whatever well, you'd like. Well, great. Thanks so much, Matt. I really appreciate your time and, and your thoughts that you shared. Thanks, Lisa. It was great fun chatting with you. That concludes the interview with Matt Richter. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 241. And the show notes will include the reflection questions. First, What are you doing and what might you do better to support autonomy, competence, and relatedness in the design and delivery of your learning products and services? And then second, which of the four ideas Matt offers for designing faster, cheaper, and better training might you apply? 
When you check out the show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, Jeff and I would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us to get some insight on the impact of what we're doing with the podcast. And as always, we'd be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcast. All you have to do is go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. So Lisa and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Consider following us and sharing the good word about leading learning. You can find us on Twitter by going to leadinglearning.com slash Twitter, on Facebook by going to leadinglearning.com slash Facebook, and on LinkedIn by going to leadinglearning.com slash LinkedIn. We also encourage you to use the hashtag leading learning on each of those channels. Please do help spread the word about leading learning. And again, if you're interested in the L&D conference that Matt and Will are putting on, just drop us a note at info at leadinglearning.com so we can offer you as a podcast listener a 20% discount. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.